Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to Odds and Evenings, a podcast about mathematics, puzzles, numbers and games. Special Christmas edition, because by the time this launches, we'll be deep into Christmas season. So we thought we'd bring you some festive puzzles for you to wrap your uh, brain around. Uh, my name is Alex, and with me as ever, I have my co-host whose name is... Alex Stephen. Happy Christmas, Alex. I'm more of a Merry Christmas person, actually. But I'm, well, I'm, I, I said it slightly to be contrary. I'm happy um, to happy be Christmas happy. And a Merry New Year. A Merry New Year. Christmas is a time of festivity, but also mathematics. Quite often uh, you get into a long discussion with your parents or your family in any way about something mathematical if you have a family that's a bit like that. I know that um, mine every year tend to get into more words puzzles, like Boggle and stuff like that, but I'm pretty sure there's families out there who get mathematical. I, I think it's the time where just a lot of people have time off work, and uh, it's time for recreational puzzles. Too much time to think. <laughs> what's, the, what's the number one like maths puzzle that people do as a family? I don't know, about ten years ago people were very into, into Sudoku. They were, weren't they? Yeah. And newspapers caught on to that and they still publish them. But I don't think it's as much of a thing anymore. No. I mean, it's still there. Yeah. But people aren't, like, obsessed with it. And then there's all those, like, uh, knockoff Sudokus that came out. All these other yeah. various Sudokus and, so and things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always used to avoid word puzzles because it, it felt like when you did a maths puzzle, a number puzzle, there's a finite... Well, there's an infinite number of answers, but you know what all the numbers are. So if I say the number... Uh, 72,329 it may be a number that you've never heard before but you hear it and you say yep that's definitely a number whereas if the answer is some word that you happen to have not met before then you you are unsure whether it's correct or not yeah I remember doing a crossword puzzle once and you know I was good at physics Um, I went on to do physics after this at university and the answer to a question was nanon and a nanon is supposedly like something to do with a, something that's a nanometer long yep. and I'd never heard that word before and I was outraged that this uh, newspaper crossword puzzle had a, had a physics word that I didn't know in it and I'm pretty sure and I never heard since like it's just not used but it's one of those obscure yep. corners of the dictionary but something like Sudoku is, is great because you just yeah you know the word the, the thing that changed my mind on word puzzles were cryptic crosswords so um, two years ago, GCHQ released a, a series of puzzles, and as part of it, you had to be able to solve a cryptic crossword. And so I, I learnt, and now I do them most mornings in on the train on the way into work. And uh, I started writing my own cryptic crosswords. Hmm. And with a cryptic crossword, even if you have never heard the word before, you can still get the answer, because part of the clue is a synonym of the word you want, um, just like a normal crossword. So if the answer was anger. Maybe the word wrath is in there. Uh, and the rest of the clue is saying some other way of getting there. So it might be that um, there's an anagram of a word, or it could be a homonym, so a word that sounds like another word, or something like that. And so you can you always have the building blocks to produce what this new word is, and you can often do it even if you didn't know what the word was. So you're saying they're easier? Uh, yeah. Um, it, it's just a different language. Right. Okay. Uh, do you have the first Christmas puzzle for us? Yes. Okay. Not really a puzzle. More of a maths problem. Okay. Um, I was thinking about Christmas wrapping. 
and uh, specifically the ribbon going around a, a piece of, say, a cuboid present. Um, now, typically, when you've got a piece of ribbon, you let, let's say you have your cuboid, you would take your piece of ribbon, you would put it over the top of the cuboid, it would go round to the bottom, and then you'd have two right angles which kind of interlock at the bottom, and then it would come back up to the top, and that's where you tie a bow. I'm doing this right now. I was instructed to have uh, tools at hand, and I've just tried it, and you're completely correct. That is how you do that. Um, now, when we tie that bow at the top, uh, what we do is we've made the string, the ribbon, into a loop. So that you could, it could be any knot at the top. A bow is a pretty one, but let's imagine that we're just fusing those two bits at the top together. Okay. When we talk about knots in mathematics, we always do it with loops. We, we never have ends which are free. Yes. Yeah, there's so a the, semi-infinite piece of string. Yeah. So the simplest sort of knot in mathematics is the unknot, which is just a loop. The next big, uh, the next smallest knot up, the next prime knot is. I'm not sure how you say this. The the trefoil, trifoil, trefoil, knot, yeah, which has kind of three loops in it, and lots of things reduced down into that. Now I've got a few things that I'm, I want to consider when we're we're doing this uh, piece of ribbon. First off, if you did the normal tying the ribbon around a box, and then you remove the box from the whole thing, it just dissolves. Firstly, what sort of knot is that? I haven't actually tried it. I wanted to see if we could think it through without trying it. Oh, okay. I was literally just about to just about to take it <laughs> off. So, you and I are also both players of Magic the Gathering, which is a yep. trading card game, and. Uh, it involves having a custom stack of cards. It's called a deck. And a common way of keeping a deck together is to do something incredibly similar with a rubber band. Okay. Have you ever tried this? I've got a bit precious about my magic cards. They're all in nice sleeves and deck boxes. Oh, you don't slap the a rubber band The thought of putting an elastic deck. band around. <laughs> um, and so I feel like if you can go from continuous loop to doing almost the exact same thing as this that's a continuous transformation so that I don't think that this is a knot yeah that seems good logic yeah should, should we try it out yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna remove this I've got rustly pieces of ribbon here I'm not sure how it'll come out on the microphone so with what props have you chosen I, I'm using a Bryant and May limited edition extra long safety matches what are, okay. you, what are you using? I'm using a piece of ribbon around a Rubik's Cube. Oh yeah, I have a piece of ribbon too, but I don't know where it's from. About ten minutes ago, I sent a message to Alex saying, you need something long and you need something cube-like. I was convinced I didn't have either of those, but here we are. Because you said you said a piece of string and a cube. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> you do know most non-maths teachers don't have pieces of string and cubes around that house. <laughs> Okay, so I've tried it out, uh, slightly battling the cat, and it's an unknot. It is an unknot, yeah. Now, what I wanted to go on to here is, at the moment, we've got one side where we've got two... Uh, the top side, where we have two straight lines crossing over each other, when you tie the ribbon. Yep. 
And then you have the bottom side where you have two right angles merging. Yes. Like interlocking. And then you have the four sides which have just a straight line going across them. Yes. I want to know, possibly just thinking about it, but then we may retry it physically. Can we tie a single loop so that it makes two interlocking right angles on all six faces? Hmm. Okay. In the 3D space that is this cube. Yep. Is that. This has something to do with Hamiltonian cycles? Uh, yeah, that seems likely. So you can imagine each face as a node with order four. And each one has four. So yep. that means that for each face, there is a way of traveling to each other face and getting back again. Uh, except the opposite face. So it's not a complete graph. Each face has one face that it can't get to. No, but I mean that. I mean, you, you could go on a, a grand journey around the cuboid. Yep. And you could and you could reach back again by travelling along each arc, which is to say, going around each um, each edge exactly once. Yeah. And getting back to where you started. So if we try and if we um, start at the top, so we could go to the front face. And then without loss of generality, we could go to the right face. Now, if we went back up to the top face, what we've done is we've made a smaller loop. Yeah. Which we'd have to do it with more pieces of string then. And if we went to the back face, then we haven't made a right angle. So our only choice is to go to the bottom face. Yeah. So we've gone top, front, right, bottom... I think you go front again at this point, don't you? Uh, I think, yes, I think you have to. Can you go back? Well, uh, we need the front face. It's got four edges to it. We've already used the top and the right edges. So we have to use both the bottom and the left. Hmm. Oh, maybe you can go to the back. What are you thinking? I think I've just done it in my head, but but I'm not sure. (laughs) Can you go, and I'm going to go relatively quickly here, just for the sake of our viewers who probably don't have a cube to hand. Top, front, right, bottom, back. No, I messed up. Hmm. Because you have to take a right angle each time, is what you're saying. You can't can't go around. So you're not even allowed to go... Ah, uh, you know, you have to go for a right angle each time because if you go straight across one, then the next time you reach that face, you're going to have to go straight across it. Like doing it straight across, uh, if, if you wanted all of them straight across, that's easy. You could do it with three rubber bands, one uh, on each axis of symmetry. Yes. It's the right angles which are harder to imagine. So if you took the three rubber bands... Yep. You could do it if you didn't have one piece of string. Just imagine that you you heat those rubber bands up to a very high temperature and they melt together and then you recut them. You could do it so that you pick rubber bands that are three travels long. So you could have one yep. that goes top, front, left, top. And there'd be a few of those. I think there'd be four of them. It is looking possible. It's looking possible, but I don't think that we'd be able to get there right now. I think it, it might be a just try it out thing. My question was going to be how many different 
ways can we do it? Should we try doing it by drawing out the uh, graph as nodes? The pen and paper approach. I have a suggestion yep. towards an answer. There will always be an even number of solutions. Okay. Just because yep. you, you can could go mirror right it. or left. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm trying the pen and paper approach. He's trying the pen and paper approach, folks. We'll be right back. Okay, so we tried to work it out with pen and paper, and it's not working. It's very difficult. Uh, we think it's doable. We're going to leave it as a Christmas brain teaser to the audience. So, here is your here is your quiz. Can you draw a line from any one face on a box and do a full circuit of every single possible transition from like the top to the front, the top to the right? top to the back in a way that you never go straight across any one particular face is that a fair summary of the problem yep and uh, possibly how many ways can you do it yeah show us how many ways there are i'm gonna guess two you think that there's only one proper way of doing it and then one mirror version of that yeah interesting i'm going to guess um, six okay just because I think you can rotate the cube. I was also thinking about presence. You know, quite often in media, in movies and things like that, there'll be a situation in which there was a present and it's been wrapped up and it's quite clearly a bicycle or it's quite clearly something else. I was thinking about something that I also think about quite a lot which is if you take a particular shape and you sort of roll a coin around it, around the outside, and imagine that you've got a pen stuck through the middle of this coin so it draws a line around it. Okay. And then imagine that that line then becomes solid and then you put the, you roll the coin around that line. And then this, you keep, yep. this keeps emanating outwards. After a while, it starts to lose distinguishability. And what I mean by that is that the the interesting parts of the shape get melted away and it starts to look pretty round. So I was wondering, how thick does wrapping paper on presents have to be before you can no longer tell what's inside? So what do you mean? How many layers do you put on before they essentially just become spheres and you have a bunch of spheres under the tree? <laughs> or indeed next to and above the tree, because it may be that many. Mm. Now, the first pass at this would say that if you take the longest distance from any one side of the present to the other, and then you draw a sphere with that diameter, and you place it inside, then that's probably the size. But the problem is, the longest distance from the actual present to the edge of that sphere is not the same as the distance that's the closest distance from any point on that present to the sphere. So that works fine if you're wrapping a pea, but if you're wrapping, say, a scooter, you're probably going to still be able to tell that it's roughly scooter-shaped. Hmm. But after a while, that's not going to be the case anymore. What is the process if you kept wrapping up, like, past the parcel? I'm not sure how, how international that game is, but there's a, a children's game that you play um, at birthday parties when you're about five 
where one of the parents wraps up some trinket uh, and then they wrap that up and then they wrap that up and it keeps getting more and more layers and often you hide like sweets and things within some of the uh, the layers of wrapping and then all the children sit around in a circle and music plays and you keep passing on the parcel then when the music stops you get to unwrap a layer and then music starts again and you keep passing it around and the aim is to be the person who uh, unwraps the final thing and as an aside there are two variants to this one in which there's a little present between each layer and the other variant in which the person or child whose birthday it is will always win in the end and yep. there's this deep foreboding sense of futility if they <laughs> if this isn't one of the ones where there's a present at each layer and you're all just wrapping off paper and you know that the mum is going to stop the music the moment that it's in the hands of the child whose birthday it is yep. you can sense I have some uh, aggravation about this I hadn't realised I had as well but thinking about it as an adult probably for the first time since I was a child I think I do too Yeah. if, if we think what those parcels look like they were amorphous spherish things and then slowly you got more and more towards the, uh, the cube that it usually was in the middle yeah. So for a small item that was about two or three inches across, I remember these presents being about a foot wide. I, I think the process in which it gets more sphere-like is at the corners, it's bound to being as tight in as it possibly could be. But the when it has a choice, the paper could be tight in or it could be billowing out a bit. So in the middle of each face of the cuboid, each layer slightly bumped out yeah so what I will say from doing the mathematical analogy to this with the you know draw any shape on a piece of paper and then draw a line around the outside of that shape that's roughly equidistant away from it and keep doing that the kinks do pop out but they never pop out perfectly if you have a heart shape and you're doing it for a heart there will always be no matter how small it gets infinitesimal but it never goes away there will be the tiny little the indent at the top of the heart will stay. Yeah. So bring it up to 3D. If we imagine wrapping an apple where it has a dimple from where the stalk comes. It's the same situation, right? Yeah, if you're wrapping perfectly, that dimple will always be there. In real life, it will go away. But if you're a mathematically perfect wrapping, will always have that tiny little dimple on the top. And if you are astute enough with your eyes you would probably be able to say, aha, this is an apple that you have wrapped for me. So the question is, how indistinguishable has something got to be? It's, I'm not sure what we can uh, say on this one. We're not talking about actual mathematical shapes here. We're talking about, well, m- the messy real-world stuff. I think I would like to think about this purely in the, um, in the, in the mathematically pure sense. Are you familiar with cardioids? I'm a little bit familiar with cardioids, but could you fill me in on cardioids? Okay, imagine you start off with a circle. Let's say circle radius one. And then what we're going to do is we're going to have a second circle, which is touching it at a point. And let's say that that second circle will start it off on the right. Now, on that second circle, you have a small dot, which is coloured in. And let's say that that dot starts on the second circle, but it starts where the two circles are meeting. What we're going to do is we're going to roll that second circle around the first circle, and as it rolls, we're going to trace where that, that point is in space. So if we rolled it clockwise around the other circle, then as it rolls, then the point goes 
away from the inner circle. And so by the time the, the rolling circle has gone 180 degrees, so it's on the left of the original circle, now that point is on the far left. As it continues its roll round, that point comes back in until when the second circle has done its 360. That point is now touching the first circle again. The shape it makes is a heart shape, which is where the name comes from. Cardioid, like a heart. Cardiologists and things. Oh, yeah. The, there are related shapes. So the deltoid and the nephroids... You can do it by... Imagine this, the second circle that you were doing was half the diameter of the first circle. Now when it rolls round, it will have done two complete revolutions of itself by the time it gets around the first circle, which means you get uh, a sort of double-ended cardioid. It has two dimples in it, one at either end, and so it gets two lobes. If you made it a third the size of the original circle, you'd get something like a, a trifoil, like the uh, the knots, where you get three lobes to it, and so on. And nephroids, you know when you have a, uh, a cup of tea, and you can see the kind of reflections from the mug at the bottom of it? You get these weird, you call them, they're called caustics. They're like light patterns that emerge. Right. Those are nephroid caustics. So this nephroid, which is the, the double-ended heart shape, it gets formed by the, the light kind of bouncing on the inside of the mug. So I have something that I think might be true. Yeah. The double-ended one that you were talking about. Yeah, the nephroid. That one is drawn by having the dot that you're tracing is on the edge of the inner circle, right? Yeah. I think that over time, as you wrap more and more layers onto the presence, that dot that you're tracing will move closer to the center. Yeah. Until eventually you're drawing a sphere. So you're bumping up to 3D. All of these things have been a 2D thing. But it's the same idea. Yes, sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm imagining a situation in which you could just take the take the 2D shape and then just core it round, rotate it. So it makes yep. it, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can flatten this down to 2D and you, th- you think about it that way. Uh, let's say it, it's like you're you're wrapping rubber bands around uh, a slice of an apple. Yeah, um, yeah. I, th- I think you you will be drawing that shape, and then and then very slowly it'll it'll tend towards the center until eventually eventually you're drawing a circle. These shapes we can do um, instead of rotating them around a circle. What we could do is we could roll them along a straight line. So imagine you had a straight line and you have a coin and you have a little mark on the edge of the coin. As it rolls along, you get this kind of a weird wave pattern going. It's like a jaggedy wave. So if you roll the coin along the surface and picture where that point is in space, you have these arches where it's jagged at the bottom and then a nice curve at the top. Repeated. Right. Are you with me? I think so. So, you've got a pound coin, which for Americans is a a nice round big coin. Oh, wait, no, it isn't. (laughs) It recently changed. (laughs) Ah. Uh, What's still round? 10p. 10p, yep. Um, So, a 10p is round. Um, You put a... You get a pen 
or marker, and you mark a point on its circumference, and then you put it on the table and you roll it along. If you imagine where that point is in space, and you plotted it, so it's, it's making a little trail behind it, when it's at the bottom of the coin, the trace will be at the table. As it starts rolling, that trace will start going up. It will make a nice loop in the air, and then as the point comes round back to the table again, we get the trace uh, coming down again. And it's going to make these arches where it's jagged at the bottom. Yes, so I'm with you on the methodology. I'm really struggling to visualise what it actually draws, but go on. Um, what we could do instead, if we imagine the, putting the point not on the circumference, but somewhere near in the middle of the coin, then you get something which is less jaggedy. Yeah, and then eventually becomes a straight line. Uh, yeah, so if it was in the centre, you get a straight line just going across. If you, this is harder to do in an analogy with a coin, but if you move that point so it wasn't on the coin at, it, at all, so it could go like through the table. Yeah. As that rolls along, you get something weirder where it starts looping into itself. It's hard to right. imagine. And that's uh, kind of how the motion of planets works in the sky, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what this is quite good at modeling, normally when we model water waves, we model them with just signs and causes. Because signs and causes are nice and differentiable. Sure. What they don't model well is the cresting of waves, where they break near the shore. We can use these uh, rolling along shapes for is a, another way of modelling water waves, which works well even for cresting waves. Interesting. Hmm. Because eventually, at some point, you'll get some sort of point or non-differentiable section on the wave because yep. you can't go from nice and smooth to loops back on itself without at some point it having one that's this spike yeah i imagine that's probably when a crest is yes it is yeah but it makes all the maths a lot harder i can imagine which is why we use signs and causes for everything yeah most of the time that's enough hmm very cool well, we talked about something interesting. We didn't manage to solve the problem at all. Um, <laughs> but I'm happy to move on if you are. Yeah, that's fine. Right. Advent calendars. I'm not sure how international these are. I don't know either. This is a real problem. <laughs> <laughs> Describe an advent calendar. Okay, an advent calendar is, uh, it has a series of windows, and you start at the start of December, and you open one window every day, and in the old days, they used to have a nice picture behind them, usually biblical, and nowadays, you tend to get ones with chocolate in. My family still does picture ones, because it is the one true way. It used to be so good. You'd get around the advent calendar in the morning when you're all getting ready for work or school or whatever, and you'd be like, yep. hey, open the one for this day. What is it? And you open it up, and it's like the lamb. And you'd be like, oh, wow, it's the lamb. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd eat some toast. It is typically a nativity scene, which is depicted on these. Yes, it does the story of the, of the birth of Jesus Christ. But... Also, you can get ones that's just like they're done by Rudyard Kipling and it's just like a parrot on the inside. So, yep. 
There's a there's a full secular range from pious to uh, heathen. <laughs> I don't actually have an advent calendar this year. No, me neither. This is the first year where I haven't had one. I'm not sure if that's an approach to adulthood or not. My mum still has one bought by her mother, so perhaps not. I did crack into a chocolate one at work, but that's because just somebody just bought one and just left it around the place for us to have. So I've already eaten the one for like the 21st of December. <laughs> you're, you're placing us in a particular uh, time period here. Oh yeah. I'm sorry, everybody. I was not working on the 21st of December this year. <laughs> um, now, these windows, they have numbers on them. And part of the fun is finding where the window is. So they're not in order. They're not just one, two, three, four, five, six in rows but they are arranged like a grid usually and part of the fun is is finding where the number is I was wondering how do you place the numbers so that they're in the most surprising place every day because what you want when you're opening them is at any particular day if you look holistically across your whole rectangular grid every region of it to have about the same number open just pleasingly, aesthetically so there are a few assumptions we're building in here yeah now, I was wondering whether the best way to do it would be trying to maximise the distance between one day and the next if you summed up all of those distances across the whole 24 days uh, whether that would be a good metric so that's your metric for surprisingness I suppose because it's now in a very fixed order, it's less surprising. So I have some considerations on what counts as surprising. Okay. The first is distance away from where the number would be if it was just left to right scanning. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Okay, yep. Additionally, variation in how close or far away one is from the next one. Yeah. So you don't want every day to go, oh, let's just look at where the last one was and go as far away from that as possible. Oh, there it is. You want it to be confusing as to whether it's going to be close to the last one or far away from the last one. But at the same yeah. time, if it's number 17, you don't just want to go, oh, I'll just go to where number 17 would be. Here we go. It's the second one on the fourth row. Like, you don't really want to be doing that either. Or yeah. do you? I think we're getting into a kind of psychology thing rather than a maths thing. And I think it's going to be too hard to pin down as a natural problem. So let's define something. Shall we work on the problem which is maximising the sum of the distances that you travel from one day to the next? Let's do that. Yep. Ooh, how many numbers do we have here? 24. Do we have 24 or 25? It's 24, but the 24th door is double the size. Yep. I, th- I think that's standard. Now, that makes a total of 25 squares. And it's displeasing that they are never arranged as a 5 by 5 grid. But let's just say the 24th and the 25th always have to be next to each other, left, right. Okay. So we've got 25 squares. Yeah. I think since we're designing this advent calendar, let's make it a 5 by 5 grid. Okay, let's say it's 25 doors. Yeah. Yeah. So we could pick the top left. Yes, you could. Or any corner. It doesn't matter which. Yeah. We've got lines of symmetry. So... Uh, the second one we could pop in the opposite corner. Yep. 
Then the next one we could pop in one of the other corners. Sure. And then the next one we could pop in one of the other corners. The other corner. The fourth corner. Yeah. Where are we going now? You would go... If you were to use this particular method, you would then you would go back to either below or to the right of the first top left corner that we did. Hmm. And then you keep doing that. Ooh, I think I've found a better way of doing it. Top left. Yep. Bottom right. Yep. Top left, but go right one space. Yep. Uh, bottom right, but go left one space. Oh, you circle each other like duelists. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going around until you spiral into the middle. Okay. That's pretty good. Uh, I don't think we're going to get bigger than that. Well, this is very similar to a problem that I've been solving for my entire life. (laughs) So, take your hand. Listeners, you can do this as well. And try and touch each of your fingers such that the numbers of fingers that you jump over each time is maximised. So the problem is the number of fingers you jump over in each step. So I've got my thumb. Yes. What am I doing with it? So you touch. Am I touching it you, to other things? You touch your thumb with your right index finger. Okay. And then with your right, you move your hand, and you touch another finger. Yep. And the number of fingers you jumped over in that process, that you get a point for each of those. And then you okay. touch another thing you haven't touched yet. Yep. And you get points for the number of fingers you jump over. And you keep doing that until you've touched all five fingers on your left hand. Okay, I see. That's yep. So you're maximizing the distance between finger selection. Now, yep. for a five-finger hand, in uh, I guess it's in 1D, that is seven. Okay, so you, if I go thumb to ring finger... Yep. I've gone over... There were two in the middle? Yep, you've gone over your index finger and your middle finger, so it's two. Yep. Then if I go to my index finger, yep. I've gone over the middle finger, which yep. is one. Then I'll go to my little finger, my pinky for Americans, yep. uh, which is going over two. Yep, so you're on five now. And then what I've got left? You can middle. go to your middle finger, so you've jumped over one. So that's six. Six. There's ways of doing it with seven. Ooh, so thumb to little finger, pinky, we've gone over three. Mm-hmm. Then to my index finger. I've gone over two. Yep. Then to my uh, ring finger. Yep. I've gone over one. Yep. Then middle finger doesn't add any on. Yep. So that's six again. So Ooh, how do you do seven? If you, so if you if you start on your thumb, the maximum is six. Okay. If you start anywhere, you can do seven. So starting and ending, we've got a line of symmetry. It's symmetrical, so I can't end on my thumb either. No, it does not end on your thumb. Correct. So if I start at the middle. I could go thumb, which is one. Yep. Little finger, which adds on three, so I'm up to four. Uh, index finger adds another two on. Six. And then ring finger. Seven. Yes. So that's one family of solutions. There is another family of solutions available. Uh, if I start on my in- index finger. Yep. I could go little finger. Yep. Thumb. Yep. Ring finger. Yep. Middle finger. Yes. And that's seven as well. Yeah, 3 plus 2 plus 2 plus 0. Yes. So, the one in which you hop thumb, little finger, index finger, ring finger, middle finger, that's kind of like what we're doing with our spiraling method. Yeah, I see. 
And so it makes me think that perhaps there is a better method than that. Yeah. But of course, I don't know if this generalizes to uh, 2D. To 2D. Well, you, I was pretty confident of my answer before we then went to a 1D problem and I realized how non-trivial it was. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> like, it was non-trivial even with a 1D and only five data points. Yes. So luckily, this is five by five. Ooh. We, we've got different metrics that we can measure it in. We've got, um, we could just do Pythagoras to work out the distances here. Or we could do taxicab metric, which is, imagine you're a, a taxi in New York, where it's all on a grid system, and you're talking about how many, uh, you, you're driving down the streets, so you can't go through the middle of blocks. So you can go, say, two streets south, and then three streets east. Yeah. Which is just easier to compare the numbers on. There is equivalent. Yeah. Well, it's a dish. I like the Pythagorean metric, unfortunately. Oh, okay. I think it'll be easier to do the taxicab one. Should we solve for taxicab first? Okay. How do we do that? How are we going to get into this problem? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I... uh, a trivial solution is to do your hand uh, as the left column, and then just yep. move across... Yeah, that's a good lower bound. And then another, the evolution of that would be instead of doing all of one hand and then all of the next hand and then all of the next hand as columns, maybe you 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 dot around in the order that you would do one of the hand solutions. So say you do, let's say the hand solution that we like is the one that goes middle, left, right, kind of left, kind of right. Which, in this case, because we're doing columns, would be middle, top, bottom, near top, near bottom. Yep. So instead of doing the center column, middle, top, bottom, near top, near bottom, you would go middle, middle, top, top, I mean top left. This gets hard to describe pretty quickly. Yeah. But you see what I'm doing? Uh, I'm kind of, I'm jumping around the columns the same way I'm jumping around their hands. Yep, I see. I'm not sure how we're going to be able to do this. I think it's too big a problem. I don't think that we can solve it now. I think a computer could do it. Yep. Okay, if a computer were to try it, how difficult of a problem is that? It's five fact- um, 25 factorial, isn't it? Yeah. You've got 25 choices for the first one, then 24 choices remaining, then 23, etc. So there are 25 factorial solutions, which is a pretty big number. Have you got a calculator on hand? So you can't brute force this. Is about... 2 times 10 to the 25. Okay, yeah, that's a really big number. How fast are computers? How many uh, operations can we do per second? Well, that's that's flops, isn't it? So, Yeah. In the most recent list, June 2017, the Chinese Sunway Taihu Light is the most powerful supercomputer reaching 93.015 petaflops on the LinPack benchmarks. Okay, what's a peta? Um, it's above terror, right? I think that's 10 to the 15. So we've got killer, mega, giga, terra, terra exa, peta. Oh, is exa in the, there before? I think so. I think it's the other way around. The prefix peta indicates the fifth power of a thousand. It means 10 to the 15. Okay. So they can, that's per second, because it's flopped. 
Yes. So we can do 10 to the 15 each second. We've got a problem which is 10 to the 25, which means it's going to take about 10 to the 10 seconds. What is 10 to the 10? Very large. So if we divide that by 60 for how many minutes? And then we divide it by 60 again for how many hours? And then we divide by 24 for how many days? I'm at 115,000 days. Divide it by 365-ish. It's 316.89 years. Or a third of a millennium. So there's probably good ways to reduce this problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we could... Um, we can take all the symmetries for a start. So it's got reflective and rotational symmetry. Yeah, so you can reduce this to a 9 by 9 problem, where certain ones can be picked twice. Mm. Some could be picked four times. It doesn't require that much to make it doable in, say, a month. The question is whether you'd want to. One thing we could do is um, have multiple computers working there. This is so true. I, that is that is what a supercomputer is. Right, okay. But go ahead, what were you saying? There was a GCHQ puzzle on the build-up to Christmas last year. And uh, the last bit of it was this um, almost like boggle-like puzzle. And it was who got the smallest answer that would win the whole thing. And um, in an attempt to make it so that there was one winner. They haven't announced the final winner. I'm not sure what's happened with it. We have a friend called Ben who did computing with us when we were both at university together. And I contacted Ben with this problem. And he wrote some code for us, uh, doing things like reducing out all the lines of symmetry and rotational symmetry and things. And we were trying to get it... We had about a month until the deadline. So we were trying to get it so that our computers could solve it in a month. And we got something that would take a couple of years. So it wasn't that much more we had to reduce it. It was only a, like an order of magnitude would have done it. And one of the ways we reduced it quite a lot is because you were fitting in uh, letters into a grid. There were only 20 letters that were possible in the top left. By chance, I had access to 20 Raspberry Pis at school. At my work. Right. Uh, which weren't doing anything. Yeah. And so we, some of my students wrote some code to each Raspberry Pi would be checking grids for us, each one starting with a different letter in the top left and feeding it into a central computer. It was just checking whether the answers were plausible and then the main computer, once it had ones which were plausible, which wasn't many, it, it would had an algorithm which would check whether the solution actually worked. Uh, we had it all set up they didn't reduce, it didn't return any actual answers. Valiant effort, nonetheless. Yeah. Yeah. That was a month of our time. <laughs> um, Your time or the computer's time? Uh, no, my time. Oh. And my students' time. So it was, it was good. Hmm. I like doing that kind of thing at work. And props to Ben for setting it all up for us. Yeah. Did he come in or did he do it remotely? Oh, no, he was in Canada. Okay. <laughs> Amazing what people can do with computers from far away okay so I'm willing to give up on this yep I am too right Father Christmas Santa Claus I'm going to make some assumptions here I'm going to assume that when he's in his sleigh the sleigh itself isn't magical it is the reindeers doing all the work Right, the reindeers oh. are the magical ones. Yeah. Okay. 
Because if the sleigh itself could power itself, then why would you need reindeers pulling it? Right. Except for yeah. the aesthetics. Yeah. Now, I'm going to assume that a reindeer produces thrust in the forward direction. So if, if it's looking forwards, it's producing a force going in the, it, that same direction, in the vector which is uh, where the reindeer is looking. Okay. Um, a bit like a jet engine. Yeah. Now, to produce any lift, what's going to happen is the reindeer has to be pointing slightly upwards. Sure. Because if it was pointing just straight forwards, gravity... It, it would go very fast, but gravity would have a, a component going down, and so the sleigh would uh, be in freefall. I have things to say, but carry on and get to the end of your thought. Okay. What angle does the sleigh plus reindeer contraption have to be at, given the average speed of Santa to get round all of the houses in the world, so that they are stable? Okay. So, typically, a satellite has no forces acting on it. Okay. Which is to say, it's not firing any thrusters at any time, except to yep. correct some drag that's uh, created due to the, the air in the upper atmosphere. Yeah, so it has the force of gravity working on it, um, which is a force always towards the centre of a circle, and so it goes around in a circle. It goes around in a circle because the, the downward force that it's experiencing is downwardly forcing it at the same rate that the Earth is falling away. Yeah. However, Santa can't really do that. Santa probably has to be in eyesight of the children, or not, but, you know, has to be across the sky. Yep. He can't be too high up, otherwise he's got to go all the way down and all the way back up again. Yeah, I mean, he breathes. Right. He's got to breathe. Yeah. Um, he has to go around the Earth in a day, essentially. Yep. Which makes me think that probably the reindeer are going to have a pretty high angle, and he's going to dangle from them for the most part. Like, imagine him going over a, a sleepy <laughs> town or village with about 20 kids in. <laughs> he's probably going to have to dip into each one yeah I see there's a lot of up and down motion going on yep but when you're going that quickly the forces of friction are they scale with the square of the speed you're going so yep. there's quite a lot of forward action as well now if you go around the earth once in a day that's about twice the speed of a standard commercial aircraft just because it takes 24 hours to get to Australia, or thereabouts. Yep. Now, what speed does uh, an aircraft fly at? A few hundred miles an hour? Well, I can tell well, you it's less than 330 meters a second, because that's the speed of sound. Yep, we, okay. We don't hit the speed of sound. So for any given speed, he's going at about, let's say, call it 200 meters a second. Yep. Well, I've got the circumference of the Earth up. It's about 40,000 kilometres at the um, equator, which is its largest circumference. 40,000 kilometres? Yep. So how quickly would he need... Let's say Santa just has to do one lap of the Earth. Yep, okay. So dividing it by 24, because we want to get kilometres per hour, that's about 1,700 kilometres an hour. And what's that in metres per second? 1.7 million meters 
per hour. So you divide by 3,600. Yep. Have you got a calculator? It's 472 meters a second. So about 500 meters per second. About 500 meters a second. About Mach 1.5. Okay. I was worried that it was going to be above the speed of light. Actually, that's much slower, isn't it? Uh, yeah, this, the light goes around the Earth in three times in a second, I think. So. Okay. So, good. We don't have to worry about any relativistic stuff. No, there's no, rel- there's no relativity involved here. We're about ten to the five away from having to worry about relativistic stuff. So we're fine. So even if he did have to... Because he's not just going the, dist- the circumference of the Earth. He's also going to, between every house on Earth. Yeah, that's the problem. There's a bit of up and down going on here. Mm. There's up and down and in and out. Like, this is a much longer distance than this. So what's the fudge factor that we should be applying here? <laughs> is it about a hundred times? Well, if it is a hundred times, then that's kind of fine because we're still well away from the relativistic stuff. Yeah. So a hundred times uh, 472 is 47,200. Okay, well, let's uh, drop some of those significant figures. Uh, 50,000. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) 50,000 metres per second. Okay, so that thrust is being produced by the reindeer. Well, let's not confuse velocity and acceleration. At 50,000 metres a second, the force of friction is something that I'm going to look up. It's going to depend on the shape of the object going through it. It does. So the force of drag is equal to one half times the density of air times the velocity squared times the drag coefficient yep. times the cross-sectional area. Okay. What is the cross-sectional area of Santa? Plus sleigh. Plus sleigh. Well, if we're just doing orders of magnitude estimations here, it's about 10 meters squared. Yeah, that's about right. The density of air is approximately 1.225. Okay. So, uh, call it 1? Let's call it 1.225. What, what we're doing here is an order of estimation. Uh, if we just do orders of magnitude, so we keep it consistent. Yeah, so everything is but I don't want to fudge it too much. Okay. The drag coefficient. Now, we choose a shape here. <laughs> what is what is Santa most like? Is Santa like a smooth sphere? I think we've got a um a sleigh situation here. Okay. Santa isn't most of the uh, most of it. If we could find the drag coefficient of a chariot, that would be great. I don't think we're going to find that. I have the drag coefficient of a large number of commercial vehicles here. Ooh, is there anything horse drawn? <laughs> so I have the drag coefficient of a velomobile. I, I don't know what that is. It's a, what is that? a bicycle car. Do we think Santa and his sleigh might have a drag coefficient roughly equal to that of a skier? No. That's really low resistance. So something higher. So a flat plate perpendicular to flow is a, has a drag coefficient of 2, and a skier has a drag coefficient of 1. Usain Bolt, when he's running, has a drag coefficient at 1.2. The Empire State Building has 
the Empire State Building if it was moving along? Uh, the Empire State Building experiences some air resistance due to the wind blowing on it, and that'll tell you how much it bends. That's, that's cool. What, what sort of numbers are coming out for cars? So cars have low things. So a, a Tesla Model 3 has 0.23. Okay. A smooth sphere has 0.1. Do you have bad cars on there? All these cars look much smoother than Santa's sleigh. Uh, and a Citroen CX. Number... Uh, yep. You know, a Citroen CX, that has a drag coefficient of 0.36. A road bicycle plus cyclist has a drag coefficient of 1. So cars are... They have less drag than skiers. Cars have less drag than cyclists. Okay, so I think we're somewhere between them. About a half? About a half would put us roughly equal to a Volkswagen Beetle. Perfect. Okay, good. Then we have all the numbers we need. The velocity is equal to 50,000. Yep. So the force is equal to a half times one times 50,000 squared which is yep. 5 squared times 10 to the 10 uh, times another half Yep. times 10 which is cool. a half times 25 times a half times 10 to the 11 um, 25 divided by 4 is about 5 so we'll call uh, it 5 times 10 to the 11 is the force well, it's about 6 Oh, now you want to be tight with numbers. <laughs> so, what was it? 6 times 10 to the what? 6 times 10 to the 11. Okay. That is a, so, so, that's just we... to keep Santa from not decelerating. Yep. So, uh, the, the two forces, we've got that going in the, um, the horizontal. Yep. 6 times 10 to the 11. We've got G acting on him going vertically. G is about 10. Yes, so we will need to estimate Santa's mass and sleigh. Do, do we need that? Yes, we do. Is acceleration. Acceleration. I only have the force. Um, so, in order, so in order to work out the angle, we're going to need to take that force on yep. the long side, and then we're going to need to take the force required to keep Santa up, which is G times the mass. Okay, yep. So the approximate mass of Santa. Plus all of the presents for all of the kids in the world. <laughs> Let's just say <laughs> he's got them in hammer space. <laughs> How much does Santa weigh? Plus slow. Oh, yeah. Um, Plus eight slash nine reindeer. I've got some good figures from the internet here, actually. <laughs> They're saying weight of gifts at takeoff is 60,000 tons. Okay. So I'm happy to take that. It's tons T-O-N-S. Is that the Imperial one? Yeah, it is. Uh, That is... 5 times 10 to the 7. Okay. So times it by G is about 5 times 10 to the 8. Yeah. So, to work out the angle, we need to do tan. We do. So, we have an adjacent of 6 times 10 to the 11... Yep. Uh, an opposite of 5 times 10 to the 8. 
I think you'll see where this is going. So, arctan of 5 times 10 to the 8 over 6 times 10 to the 11. Do you have a calculator? Yeah, I'm typing in. Sorry, I had to convert from radians. 0.05-ish. Which is a really small angle. It's about a 20th, 20th of a degree. So the angle that the reindeer would need to pull Santa at is, is negligible. Yep. They'd kind of pull him forwards, and then if he's drooping a bit, then, you know, maybe one of them pulls upwards. Or how about he, this? How many reindeer yep. does Santa have? Um, he, well, eight or nine, depending on whether you're including Rudolph. So maybe just half the time, one of the reindeers pulls straight upwards. That's still too much, isn't it? No, because... Our angle... I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, in approximately. If you had nine. And then every now and again, maybe about 40-30% of the time, Rudolph decides to just go straight up instead and lets, lets <laughs> the other ones pull forward. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, if the gifts are not in the like, let, let's say you put them in the sack and it puts it into a side universe where the mass isn't adding to the mass of the sleigh. Yep. Then when we do our calculation here, instead of having a, a total force downwards of five times ten to the eight, you essentially have a total force downwards of about I don't know a hundred. Yeah, it would be about. It would be about a thousand. If you say Santa's a hundred kilograms, which I'm sure he's probably more heavier than, but yep. and the sleigh as well. But the angle's only going to get smaller. Yeah, the, that gets an angle of about ten to the minus nine. Yeah, of a degree. And so by the time uh, he lands back at the North Pole, because he's given out all the gifts, they they're going to be lighter, and so the angle is going to get closer and closer to just being horizontal. Yes. But a twenty-third degree—that's a uh, that's sizable. Yeah, I mean, it exists. I'm not sure you could see it with the naked eye. So when you're drawing your Father Christmas on your heathen end of the scale of Advent calendar, you should put him one twentieth of a degree away from being horizontal. Yes, or at the very least you should put the reindeers one twentieth of a degree away from being horizontal. Yeah, you could have him level. Yeah. But he sits at the back of the sleigh, so who knows? Right, I think we've got one we actually had managed to solve. Hooray! We got there <laughs> in the end. Close enough. Well, we're going to have to heavily edit. Oh yeah, no, this is going to be a very heavily edited episode. Right, that brings us to the end of uh, this episode of Odds and Evening. Um, before we go, we just want to wrap up and assess how well we think each of those problems went. How satisfied are we? Yeah. So, what did we do first? The first one we did was Christmas present wrapping knots and combinations. Yeah. Which we didn't solve in the slightest. That was the one where we were trying to do right angles on every face. Yeah. And we ended up just guessing how many solutions there were. We didn't even get close. Uh, no, it ended up being quite hard. Frankly, it was embarrassing. Yes. I'm going to go three. I'm going to also go for a three. Okay. I, it's one that I'm going to go and work on. I want a cube that I can actually draw on. Yeah. So when I get into work, I'm going to get one of the many cardboard boxes we have and start drawing on it. <laughs> yeah, you just have to worry about keeping track. Maybe you could do it with tape. You put tape yep. on it. Right, the next one that we did was present indistinguishability, which yep. I was thinking about 
wrapping up presents and until the bicycle no longer looks like a bicycle. Yep. We didn't really come to any properly conclusive answer as to you know, how deep does this thing need to go typically until you can't really see what kind of present it is anymore. Yep. But we did talk about uh, cardioids and nephroids and we talked about English party games. And we managed to potentially think of a good way of approaching the problem which is in the radial distance of the point of interest on a cardioid. Four. So I'm going to say about a five. The next problem was the advent calendar dotting around, and we ended up talking about uh, the finger game. Yeah. We came to the conclusion that it was a problem for computers, and that it was a problem which is just about doable on computers if you've got them working for long enough. Yeah, I think it's vaguely doable. 300 years with no optimization. That sounds within the, the realms of probability. 300 years with no optimization on the world's most powerful computer. Yeah. I think there's definitely some kind of extra greedy algorithm you could use to, you know, to, to, to really discount stuff. I think uh, there's a lot of room for optimization. So yep. I'm, I, I might even try it out myself. Who knows? Yeah, I'm just vaguely satisfied with this. I'd give this one a six. Uh, I'll go for six. The Father Christmas angle was the last one we did. Yep. Turns out the angle's pretty small. Yep. Are you satisfied with what we got? I'm I'm satisfied. I'm going to go nine. Yeah, I'm going to put a nine on that as well. Only because we didn't, you know, really use exact numbers, and we had to kind of fudge it around to determine the speed Santa's going. And because this thing scales with the square, then actually that would probably change the angle quite a lot. Hmm. But uh, you know, it's something that potentially you could set up a calculator for. Like the formula's quite easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just timesing and dividing stuff. Yeah. So we hope you all enjoyed this Christmas edition of Odds and Evenings. Uh, we hope you're having a, a wonderful Christmas, a happy and merry Christmas, and a happy and merry New Year. Now that you've finished listening to the episode, you probably better go back and join your family again. Yeah, exactly. Stop ignoring your family and listening to podcasts and go and talk to them. As ever, you can find us online at twitter.com slash odds and evenings. That's O-D-D-S-A-N-D-Evenings. Uh, I myself am online at Twitter at speakmouthwords. Speakmouthwords, all one thing. Alaric is not on Twitter. Where are you? I've got a maths website with lots of maths and puzzles that I wrote for my students. It's alaricstephen.com. A-L-A-R-I-C step hen dot com Fantastic. So we'll see you in the next episode for more fun. Uh, probably not to do with Christmas or New Year. See you next time. Merry Christmas.